This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by the Messy Spirituality Podcast. Hey, this is Jason Elam. Join Lola Robbins, Kyle Butler, and me for the Messy Spirituality Podcast, where we try to empower your spiritual evolution with honest conversation about how to be a better human, taking a critical look at toxic Bible stories, and look behind the headlines for growth opportunities underlying current events. Hey, it's a bisexual hairstylist who escaped a cult, a black mystic, and a recovering Southern Baptist preacher. What could possibly go wrong? Check out the Messy Spirituality Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Western Christianity has spent the last 2,000 years telling everyone they're separated from God. This is Not Church with John and Nat Turney. Kyle, Kyle, God damn it, Kyle, could you one time just click it? <laughs> Sorry, that's a, that's, a little, that's a little Jack Black, Tenacious D for you there. Um, oh, could you one time just kick it, Kyle? One time. A long time it's ago. Kind of, it's kind of like Jesus saying, could you, could you one time just not kick it with me in the garden? I mean, really? You couldn't just pray with me one night? Yeah. See, I, I bring it all back. Hey, by the way, the, welcome to the podcast. We're, uh, we're, glad to, <laughs> we're glad that y'all are here. Uh, to our devoted um, tens of listeners, we're, we're glad that you're here with us today. This is the podcast we have lovingly called This Is Not Church, because if it was church, you'd have left by now. John, what were you going to say, John? Why'd you like... I, I was going to do the second half. Oh, I'm sorry. Because if it... Okay, so this is not church, because if it was church... You would have left by now. I took you long enough to get there. That was like a very Paul Harvey pause. And now the rest of the story. Yeah. But so, so I always feel bad though, because this isn't church. Then I'd like, we can't pass the, the collection plate. What the hell, man? I know. I so mean, that's why we make no money. This is why we that's make why, no money. That's we, why we're we, poor. We don't give people <laughs> a chance to sow into our ministry and reap the heavenly rewards. So I will make sure to, that everyone has our PayPal account and our Venmo moving forward. Yes, please do. Cash app. Um, we also take Bitcoin um, and whiskey. Oh, yes. Actually, forget about the Bitcoin. Just send me whiskey. I would be happy with that. But all right. Um, I'm Nat, by the way, and this is my brother, John. Say, um, flippity floop, John. Flippity floop, John. See, I'm just testing the water to see how far you to see how far you might take that gag. All right, next week it will be something worse. But anyway, we have an awesome guest tonight, and uh, I will read a little bit about her, and then we will just uh, we'll see what happens. All right, you ready? All right, this is Karen Shock. Karen Shock's love for writing began when she received her first diary as a young girl. The lock and key made it easy for her to tell her the, tell the diary some honest, dramatic truths about herself. All these years later, she still loves to put pen to paper and write out her deepest longings, wildest dreams, and biggest fears. The only difference now is there's no longer a lock and a key on her thoughts. As time went on, she began to understand that putting the truth out there for the world, for the whole world to read might be scary, but the vulnerability was worth the risk. She wants readers to know that they are not alone. Karen lives in Fort Wayne, Indiana with her husband, Kevin. They have uh, four adult children. Is that right? Four adult children, four grandchildren, and one on the way. She is currently a writer for Pathios, and her first book, Too Much and Not Enough, is coming out on April 18th, which is, oh, not too dang far down the road. So uh, after all of that, welcome to the podcast. I am so excited to be here. Well, man, we are stoked to have you. Uh, four kids. I have four adult kids, too. Yeah. Um, yeah I have uh, three. My youngest, my youngest just turned 22. And so I have all the way from 22 to 28, 29, something like that. My, uh, I have three grandkids. Oldest, 
my oldest is 23 and my youngest is 18 and I have no grandkids. Yeah, but you have grand puppies like all over I the do. place. I do. I have grand puppies. Spawning like rabbits everywhere. And grand kittens. And grand kittens. So um, I recommend the grandchildren because um, they don't come and stay forever, but they do come and bring joy. And then they leave and go home with their parents. <laughs> my, my, just just, just to be clear, my grand puppies also don't stay here forever. They leave. Oh, okay. All right. Well, that's good to know. Well, all right. Well, let's uh, let, let's get started. So, uh, Karen, tell us a little bit about your writing. Maybe uh, actually, you know what? Let me let's kick off with our with our standard question. Um, maybe a tiny little bit of however much you feel like sharing about your maybe your spiritual journey. What's what's up with that? That's my favorite question, John. <laughs> what's up so, with that? You know. What's so what's up with that? Okay. So I was born in 1969. One of you guys. That seems hardly possible. I'm not sure I believe that. Aren't you guys about that age? Yes. So you were born what what month? Let's see how close we are. October. So Mm, I was born in October. But I was born in May of 1970. See, I'm I'm October 71. So. I didn't, okay. I, I, I didn't sneak in. I, I just missed the 60s, but I always felt like a child of the 60s, really. So class of 1988, yeah. high school? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, John was 88, I was 89. That's awesome. Okay, so here we are. Born in the 19, late 1900s. Yeah. Um, yeah. Loved Jesus, had parents who loved Jesus, Methodist. Um, mm-hmm. They were great. Uh, I was the baby of the family and my older brothers and sisters went to a, like a Billy Graham crusade. It was a Bill Glass crusade back in the day and got saved and then told me that I needed to ask Jesus into my heart. So I did when I was five. And then when I was, I think nine years old, 1979, I was in the fourth grade sitting there at a Youth for Christ event, so a high school youth event with my parents on New Year's Eve and watched, um, you guys heard of A Thief in the Night, that movie? Oh, oh yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm so sorry. Yes. Let's, let's, just, let's just trigger all the millennials right now. <laughs> <laughs> so you watched A Thief in the Night and scared the shit yeah. out of you? Yeah, I had no idea. Nobody had ever talked about that. No idea what was going on. I will say now I know. I went back and watched it a few years ago to see if I could if my memory served me correct, and it did. Um, very vivid stuff, except for I didn't realize that the movie sucked as bad as it was. You can be excused as a nine-year-old for not knowing what bad cinema is when you see it. Well, they used, at the end of the movie, movie, when they chopped the star's head off, which is how it ends, because she loved Jesus. Spoiler. Hello. Spoiler, you get your head chopped off. <laughs> if you love Jesus. <laughs> if you love Jesus. <laughs> and you're already been taken away seven years ago. Right, um, in the great tribulation or whatever. Yeah. Yes. And they, they catch your head in a in a um laundry basket. Did you guys know that? It's a laundry basket. That's how well the movie's made. See, I, I really find that a little comforting. <laughs> I mean, if I, I mean it's it's I mean, it's not the worst basket your head could be put in. It might smell of downy fabric softener. Well, there you go. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> I'm sorry. The only way I can deal with a movie that shitty, uh, theologically and cinematically, is to just it's make fun of it. 
it, it, it is what well, spiritual abuse though to to to, to and having been made, raised Methodist, then of course, Methodists don't believe any of that shit. No, 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 no. So and that must have come as quite a shock to you. Absolutely. My parents, and my parents didn't say a word. They, uh, they were older. We came home that night and I, I remember it like it was yesterday, laid in between them in their bed that night and held both of their hands, gripped them as tight as I could because doggone it, I did not want God to take them away from me in the wow. middle of the night. Like, and that went on for months where I would just lay in between them, never talked about it to them. Talk, told mm. all my, I was the best, I became the best little evangelist. Told all my Yikes. friends about it. Told them they'd get their head chopped off if they didn't ask Jesus into their heart. And yeah. So all of a sudden God became just this monster of a God in my head. What this God was that I had, like I loved him and he was so awesome. All of a sudden it was like just terror and afraid, you know, I still wanted to obey him. Although, okay, so later in my journey, uh, several years down the line, it turns out I loved boys too, like a lot. So I loved Jesus, but I also <laughs> And I would go to these youth events and I would learn about, back in those days, it wasn't like true love weights or anything, the purity culture. It was um, a biological hand grenade ladder, which we, we learned that every step that you take up the ladder and, and the, and it would have the little, um, it would tell you what it was. So it was like holding hands, necking, petting, light petting, heavy petting, you know, all these things. And then finally, if you go up the ladder high enough, you're going to end up having sex because the prongs of the ladder break as you go up them. So first of all, that sounds highly erotic and I'm, I'm a little, I'm a little interested in this now. I'm going to take this home and show my wife. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to call it. I'm just going to refer to it as some sort of sexual hand grenade. Like That's prepare so yourself, baby. I'm about to pull the pin. <laughs> <laughs> that was a thing. You're not making that up. I am so not making that up. How did we miss that, John? I feel like we missed out on so much. We were just told don't. Yeah. And what is the difference between light petting and heavy petting? I never could figure out where the line was. <laughs> I don't know if it's outside of the clothing and then inside of the clothing, uh, maybe, or maybe. I don't know. Well, I don't know. I don't know. It's a distinction without a difference, maybe, but okay. All right. Sexual yeah. hand grenade. Oh, that's not what you I, called I, it. I'm I sorry. I'm misquoting you. Yeah. What I was the, there was a, biological hand grenade lab. Biological hand grenade. Or so biological hand grenade. You can look so, it up. So in their, in their estimation, when the grenade goes off, that's a bad thing. Although that sounds to me like it might be an incredible thing. Okay, yeah. go ahead. So, <laughs> so, you, so you found yourself in this place of loving Jesus, but also, you know, playing with um, live ammunition. Absolutely. And it was fun. And it was, <laughs> I ended up pregnant. Um, the grenade went off. Damn it. I would go to these camps, though. I had a boyfriend all through high school who was a really nice kid, another Methodist kid, not my husband now, but a nice boyfriend. And I'd come home from these youth camps, Youth for Christ camps in the summer. I'd break up with him because he wasn't, we were not equally yoked. He hadn't gone to camp and I had, you know, two weeks later, get back together with him because I missed him. And he was so confused. (laughs) Poor guy. Anyway, so I ended up though with my husband and started dating him after our freshman year of college. And that summer ended up getting pregnant and 
we had broken up by the time I figured out that I was pregnant. And because of my faith, I wasn't willing to, I wasn't going to have an abortion. Although he, he was, he wanted me to, he wanted me to get rid of the problem. And we fought all during the pregnancy. He came back right after she was born. Our daughter was born and held her in the hospital for the first time. And at that point, it was crazy because we hadn't talked for four months when he walked into the hospital room. And um, I obviously wasn't that happy with him, but he came in and he held her. And he would say that moment changed his life where he knew he wanted to be a dad. And she looked just like him. He's Mexican and she just had those dark eyes and awesome skin. And yeah, we tried to get together and break up and get together for the next two years, tried to make it work and just disagreed on everything. And uh, at some point, this is kind of a funny story. At some point, I told, we would tell our story then after, after years down the road, after we're married, we would tell our story at like True Love Waits events and, uh, you know, churches and all that kind of thing. And I would always say that God told me to break up with him. Like that I knew because he would tell me, he would go out with other girls while we were dating and I had a daughter, we had a daughter together and he would tell me like, you're not going to get anybody else. And I, um, was watching, I would tell people that God told me to break up with them, but actually it was Oprah Winfrey. I was watching her (laughs) afternoon and she was like, you know, if the person's treating you like crap, get out of, get out of the relationship. You don't deserve it. So I, I framed it in God, that it was God, because you can't tell your testimony and say that Oprah Winfrey is telling you. (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't play in evangelical circles. It didn't. It didn't. It didn't even play in my circle. I I didn't even. Well, I got to break up with you. And uh, Oprah told me to. (laughs) I love Oprah. Someday, maybe I'll get to talk to Oprah and thank her for it. But um, because... uh, Within those couple months then, after my husband knew I was serious at that point, then he would say that he'd made a 100% turnaround on Christmas night. I took Alyssa, our daughter, out to his house to see his parents and for them to give gifts and stuff. And he walked back into a bedroom and he came out of the bedroom and he said, hey, I have a Christmas present for you. And I was like, yeah, what's that? And he said, I just got down on my knees and I asked God to change my life. And I didn't believe him, but it was, he became a different, he was a different person. We watched something happened and it was amazing. And he got married and had three more children and then became youth pastors. Well, youth leaders. I couldn't be a pastor, of course, because I'm a girl. Well, of course Um, not, no. Of course not. And so... And got really involved with all kinds of church things, all kinds of... And then I would say, let's see, probably 12 years ago, well, 2011, I remember was the first time that I read Rob Bell. Well, I had read Heretic, Heretic. I, um, I saw a video of his. We had, we used to had been like, we'd watch all his NUMA videos and stuff. But oh yeah, on Piper sure. told us that we couldn't watch him anymore or listen to him. Who who said that? John Piper. (laughs) Oh, man. Every time John Piper's name is uttered, a puppy gets kicked. Please. Oh, my gosh. Because it's horrible. 
We we just loved him so much. Gosh darn so, it. And he said, no more Rob Bell? No more Numa videos? Oh, Farewell. yeah. Bob Rob, Bell. Rob Bell, right? Yeah, no, he, we were at a passion event, a college event, and he was speaking there. And he said, if you're listening to anybody that is like in the emergent church, you're a sitting duck for false doctrine. Yikes. And so at that point, it was like, burn the NUMA videos, burn anything that was anybody that wasn't John MacArthur or John Piper. But I started having questions about my faith, started wondering how hell could be real because we went so far down the reformed, just down the reformed road and read so many books and did so many systematic theologies. And I I just, the deeper I went, the more I was like, I just wanted to know God so, so bad. And I would beg him and I would cry out to him. So John Piper, damn it, the puppies are taking a beat in the night. He who shall not, okay, he who shall not be named Says no more Rob Bell, the what? emergent church. And I remember very much when the emergent church was the boogaboo, right? That was the boogeyman. Because um, that was going to lead you down a slippery slope to, slope to stuff like, I don't know, loving gay people it's, and, um, you know, rejecting the concept that God tortures people forever and, you know, all kinds of crazy stuff. So, crazy stuff. That, but that started to be a problem for you, right? That whole. It did. It did. And um, just the whole thing, I, anxiety and depression like had just taken a hold of my life too. Um, you know, raising four kids, we homeschooled, we did the whole kiss dating goodbye, taught true love weights, even though we didn't, we hadn't waited, um, told them don't do what we did. I mean, it worked out for us, but don't you dare do that. Right, um, of course. And then it became with our own children, like, okay, don't even, you know, every man's battle, don't even look at a girl, don't, don't even, all that kind of stuff. But in the meantime, I'm learning that God chooses some and doesn't choose others. And babies could go to hell if they're not chosen. And I'm just like, I remember just like looking outside of our bedroom window and just being like, God, I don't even know if you exist anymore. Like, I don't even, I don't even know if you're real. And then I read, I blew like jazz by, uh, Oh, I love that book. Donna Miller. That was such so wrong for me to do that, but I did it. Such and a I good book. He's such a heretic. Such a heretic. <laughs> so so liberal. Spoke right to my very soul. My husband and I went to see the movie Blue Like Jazz in the theater, and we like snuck in. <laughs> it was practically. Well, you can't a- let anyone from your church see you there. Right. Oh man, I have so many stories I could tell. Like we went yeah. from Reformed Church to Reformed Church, and just got. It was so bad. It was so hard. Francis Chan, we were part of one of his church plants and that went way wrong. And you got the greatest hits of crazy people. Yeah, I was just going to uh, tell you, I'm sorry for that. <laughs> well, we, we, we taught his book, Crazy Love in youth group when I was a youth pastor. Yes, yes. So that that time when his book came out, we were in his church. We, we were with his worship pastor had planted a church in Columbus, Ohio, and we were living there and we went and helped start a college ministry there. And it was a small church plant and it went way wrong, way wrong with the money and with different things. And there was no accountability and everything. Yeah, it was so bad. And then Francis, my father-in-law wrote a letter, an email to Francis Chan because he thought Francis would come and save the day because he was all of our heroes. And he wrote the nastiest email back to my father-in-law. And I'll tell you what, that was one of the most devastating days of my life was to read that email and go, okay, this is who, this is who the leader is. Of, it just was unbelievable. 
And I still have the email and I would love to talk to Francis someday and just say, Hey, why would you, why, like, why did you do this? You crushed us. But anyway, all of that led to me saying, I think Rob Bell might be onto something. Like I, I remember watching a video of his love wins, like a commercial for his love wins book and going, I, every question that he has, I have every single question. And my daughter, who at that time was probably 20 years old, looked at me and said, Oh, mom, don't do this to us. Don't, don't you dare. You're scaring me, mom. And I was like, I, I'm sorry. And it's not Rob Bell that's leading me to this. It's me. Like, these are my thoughts. These are what I'm thinking. This has nothing to do with somebody who's leading me astray. This is, I have these questions. So that started us down the road of deconstruction. Yeah. And yeah. You, that's, a, that's a good place to start though. You know, as, I, as we talk to a lot of people who are either in the midst of this, whether they call it that or not, um, questioning of, there, there's usually some big piece of theology where you go, okay, this no longer makes sense. And then you, as you start to pull that thread, other stuff gets unraveled too. So for a lot of people, for me, uh, it, it was that it was the hell thing, you know? And I shared, I read, I read, I was all, I had been a Rob Bell fan for a long time. We'd watched the NUMA videos in youth group. I'd used them as a youth pastor, as a teaching tool. I'd been listening to his sermons on podcasts um, when he was pastor of Mars Hill. Again, not the Mars Hill in Seattle um, with that shithead, um, but his own one in Michigan that was really good. And his teaching style was really cool. And and I, anyway, he's just a smart guy. And I, I don't agree with everything he says. I don't agree with anything I say, with everything that I say. But um but that that process began. And when that book came out, I loved it. And and I remember talking to, I was actually on staff as a pastor at the time. And I remember taking it to my senior pastor and saying, um, you may not agree with this, but you need to read it and ask some really good questions. I mean, at the very least, these are questions that are worth asking. Um, and he read it and he came back and he's, he's like, you know, I won't, I won't disagree with these are good questions, but these are settled for us, essentially. And then he got really mad um, his biggest beef was that Rob didn't really come down with a position at the end. He doesn't come out and say, I reject. He just says, I have questions. These are my questions. And then he leaves it up to the reader to make their own decision. That bothered him. He thought that was cowardly. I'm like, yeah, I don't think so. I think it's brave, actually, to say, I'm not here to, I'm not here to draw a conclusion. I'm here to pose some big questions. And honestly, there, the, he did it in such a way that like, I don't, I don't know how you answer some of those questions and still stay a fundamentalist evangelical, you know, well, I, but I, what, what I find interesting about that book specifically, and that he doesn't answer these questions is he does leave them up to you. Yeah. Of we course. all know that Rob Bell has his own answers. Oh, absolutely. He's a full blown and, heretic. And I, sure. and I believe I know his answers, but by leaving it that way, he's saying, can you come to the same conclusions? Yeah. Well, he's not imposing his view on right. you. He's, but he's asking you, he's asking you to join this journey. Yeah. Of people who are willing to leave behind this event, this evangelical fundamentalist ideal of what the American church is. Yeah. And by, by leaving it up to you, he's actually asking you to either join him on the journey. Or not. And you have the right to do that. And so for people like me, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to B 
be even more outspoken than this book of love wins, which I think he then, he, he kind of doubles down later and say, like, this, these are my, these are my thoughts. Well, these I are think, my beliefs. When the evangelical church, the mainstream evangelical church, like threw him to the wolves, I think that released him to go, you know what? Now I can say what I want. That bridge has obviously been burned. And then he landed squarely on his feet. He did just fine. And so it was easy for people like me who was outside of the church when this book came out. Cause I, you know, was outside, I was outside, then I was inside, then I was outside. But it was super easy for me to say, I actually take this even farther than Rob Bell does because, and I think it, even at that point, I think Rob Bell would take this farther than what he did with that book. And I think he's done, you know, with his, his later works, I think we have a better understanding of where Rob Bell lands on things like universal reconciliation. Is there, is there not a hell? What does the Bible even mean? Right. Um, yeah. But it gave people like me who was, I was already on the outside. I've been the out, I've been on the outside since 1989. God bless you. I've been on the outside saying, you guys are all full of shit <laughs> for what? 30 years. Yeah. Um, we saying, did it, man. You're, you were cool before there was cool. We got it, man. Hey, there's not very often, it's not very often that I can say that I was cool before cool was cool. <laughs> John was deconstructing when... I was <laughs> deconstructing before the word even existed, right? Yeah. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take ownership of that. Well, okay. Sorry, yeah, Jeff Derrida would disagree with you, but that's okay. We can talk right, about Derrida right. some other time. Yes. I'm, Derrida, I'm with you. Derrida, Derrida and I are cool. <laughs> but it gave people like me permission to finally step up and say, hey, this is the shit I've been talking about. Yeah, for sure. For 30 years. The Western 30. Evangelical Fundamentalist Church has had this wrong almost since day one. Well, it's almost like they had an agenda starting out. Oh my God, you can't say agenda. Almost like. So after you, <laughs> so after you kiss, eventually I'm guessing you, 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 you said goodbye to, to Mr. Chan. And all of his craziness. Yeah. Are you are you in church now? Do you are, are you churched or are you like John and I who are like eh, we're kind of over the whole thing? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like I could take. I'm not anti-church, by the way. I could just take it or leave it. That's exactly. That's exactly where we are. Exactly. And I'm in a very leaving it stage right now. You know what? It works out beautifully too. It's funny because our children are still our adult children are very much. Well, three of them are still very much in the church. And the one that has the four children and lives two and a half hours away from us, her husband is an elder in their church and they can never get away. They they can never leave on a weekend. They can never, you know, and I told her, it's funny because that was our life when they were growing up. You know, we were so involved in small group and church leadership and there every time. And so our family came second, our parents and all of that kind of thing that, you know, that was, that was an afterthought at that time. And I'm like, okay, you know that, you know that song, Cats in the Cradle? Mm -hmm, That's my song for my children now. I'm like, yep. When you coming home, kid? I don't know when, because that's where like they're busy. And if we were still busy in church, we would never see them. Like if we were busy in our, it just helps for us to be able to be like, you know what? We'll come down this weekend. We don't have any plans. We're not in the nursery this weekend taking care of somebody else's kids. We'll come down and hold our grandbabies. And it's a beautiful thing. 
we have friends. Yeah, we yeah we have friends who are still very involved in church, and it is it is virtually an act of Congress to get a Sunday off. Exactly. Where they don't have to go make coffee and serve donuts or whatever they've signed up to do because there's no exit from that ever. Um, you just signed up for a lifetime of serving coffee or you at some point you just sneak away into the dark and, and hope they don't hate you again, you know. But yeah. the whole, we, we did the same thing. You know, my wife and I, we, you know, and then matter of fact, we just, we just shut our church down. Um, we planted a church three years ago and we just got to a point where we had so much going on. Like something's got to give. It's going to be this thing. So we found ourselves just saying, we need to reclaim some of our life back, you know? And it's been a good thing. We miss the people that that we connected with, but at the same time, we've actually gotten like a piece of our life back. So I'm assuming, and I I know I'm probably making a big mistake by assuming, but that you've been, had been a writer probably your whole life on some level, right? Have you written, have you always enjoyed writing? I know your intro said that you like to write in your diary and other things like that. Yeah, and then journals. Then it was, you journals. know, good, that was the good Christian thing to do too. So I have journal upon journal upon journal. And I think that's where, so th- I think my next book is going to be, well, my next book after my next book is going to be journaling. Like I'm going to take, I'm going to go back through all my journals and look at like my prayers from 1995. And then I'm going to talk to that Karen mm. from the 50. 50- three-year-old Karen's perspective and just tell her, okay, this is what I know to be true. That's now. interesting. You know, like be- go back and talk to all those little Karens, even the one from, you know, the 10-year-old diary. So so that's your next book after your next book. So what's your next book going to be? Well, Never, time, you don't have to tell me. That's okay. <laughs> no, it's okay. At the time I put this book together, my parents lived with us for 10 years before they passed away. Well, my dad passed away after two years and then my mom was with us for eight more years before she passed away. And um, I just have written so much about them and their lives and how their lives and even their deaths have been had such an impact on my faith too. It all kind of lines up as far as me just realizing. I mean, there was a time when I thought my parents probably going to hell because they weren't radical like Francis Chan. They are, they, you know, they didn't raise me to go to the nations and they didn't have Bible studies and they didn't kiss, you know, tell, tell me to kiss dating goodbye, all those things. I didn't know where they were in their faith. And after they passed in those years, right in there, it was like, wait a minute, these guys love Jesus. And they were way more Jesus to me than anybody I knew that was like reading their Bibles every day. So that being said, I have written a ton about them and that will be my next book. I have, I have a huge folder of all my poetry and stuff about them. So yeah. Yeah. So this book though, yes. the one we're here to talk about, which sure. uh, we'll be releasing in a month and a half or so, April 18th. Yeah. Uh, what's up with that? <laughs> There's that question again. You know, what, you, know what's, you know what's funny, John, is I didn't say that once to Terry Wildman. Yes, you did. Did I? Yes, I you did. This, whole, this whole Native American thing, dude. What, what, what's up with that? No, what's you up? didn't say that. You didn't say that. Okay, I'll give you that. Terry Wildman, by the way, is the was the author of the uh, First Nations version of the translation of the Bible of the New Testament, and he's incredible. Yeah, so. That's oh, awesome. Yeah. Uh, he was, he was, uh, anyway, but, um, but yeah. So what's book. up with my so, book? So, so what's up with that? A year and a half ago, I got, uh, I signed up for Keith Giles Square 
one course on deconstruction and reconstruction. And the very first meeting, we all kind of told our stories. And after I got done telling my story, I just said, you know, there, there came a point, uh, probably five years ago or so where I just got too dangerous. I would go to these women's Bible studies and go to these things. I was a speaker. I would, I would speak at women's retreats and different things. But as my questions, I started to have these questions. And the one year, my, the first year I ever had a word of the year, you know, my word was all. And I had no idea why I came up with all, but then I started to look up the word all in the Bible. And I was like, oh, so does all mean all? Like actually when, you know, did Jesus die for all and all are saved through the second Adam, you know, all that kind of stuff. And as I was doing that, I just, I would bring these things up maybe a little bit here and there in my Bible studies and at one point, I had a lady, sweet lady, a good friend of mine still, but she looked at me and she said, you know, it's okay with the adults if you ask these questions, but I really would never want you to bring this up in front of, you know, the younger kids, the college age kids or the high school kids. And I was just like, I'm done. Like I'm, I'm out. I don't have a voice anymore. Like I just felt like I had lost my voice in, with God when it came to Jesus. And I said that in our square one group with Keith. And he just looked at me after it was over and he said, you know, I think you're going to find your voice again. I think you're going to find a people that want to hear what you have to say. There's a whole world of us out here that feel the way you do. And so that just became, I mean, tears were streaming at that point. And that just became a journey of, I started writing on square one, like writing out some of my poetry stuff. And he was like, okay, we need to get you on Patheos. And then the next thing it was, we need to get these, this stuff in a book. So let's put together a book. And that's what we did. We put together a book and it's taken, I think I started in June of last year to put it together. It's taken a while, but. no. Yep. You, you, you're doing better than me. They've, they've, they've had my book longer than yours. So, <laughs> oh, oh um, really? Okay. Yeah, well, um, I, I'm in like a severe writer's block moment. Um, I, uh, j- just to kind of put my perspective on what you did, I gave up the Bible for Lent. And this is the story. I'm not going to go into the story. Our, our listeners have heard this for many, many times. I gave up the Bible for Lent and then realized I didn't need it anymore. I just didn't need it. But what do you do with that information in your own brain? Right? That I don't need, I don't need the Bible anymore. I, I use the Bible as really good ammunition towards people who I thought were using the Bible incorrectly. I was very good at it. I gave it up on purpose because I was cherry picking also to attack them. So I completely gave it up for Lent. Then I gave it up for a year. And I realized I didn't need it. But what do you do with that? So I wrote a blog, right? I wrote a blog for a year of this character who didn't have access to a Bible. And I'm not going to get into all that. Um, And this character then had a conversation with God for a year. And that is what's now become my book. And um, Keith, in his infinite wisdom says it's it's not it's not complete it needs more information but my writer's block came into play when i'm like what if i don't believe what i wrote a year ago 2 years ago 
So I'm like scared to death to reread the book to rewrite it, right? Because I don't want to come to the point where I'm like, oh, fuck, I don't even believe that anymore. So it's all been on the back burner. And luckily for me, choir has been very, very patient with me. But enough about me. Let's talk about you. I want to read your book. I'll, I'll send you, I'll send you the rough, the rough copy. Uh, and you can read what is not finished. My question for you would be, at what point did you decide that your book should be written in the form of poetry? Because the funny thing is, each each chapter of my book ends with a poem. Oh, I, okay. I, read my, I write my chapter and then I, re, I re-establish it or whatever you want to call it Yeah, with a poem. So each chapter then ends with a poem that kind of sums up the chapter within a poem. Yeah. Um, so what made you decide that, uh, is, is that just the, lo- the language that you write in? Because for me, you're, you, and I've talked to Daryl Lapp about this as well. Um, when I read better poets than me, it makes me not want to write poetry anymore. So that's, uh, that's what I would say about your poetry. Is it, I, I no longer want to write poetry. <laughs> not because I, um, not because I hate myself, but because you're very good at it. Well, thank you. I don't feel that way. You've got to know that. I don't feel that well, way at all. Feel that way about your poetry. Because one, one, the cool thing about your poetry is it feels like we get to step into your life. At the same time, we get to hear your voice through poetry. And uh, this is what I would say about your poetry. And about this specific book, it's like, and we're going to, Nat, Nat is he, uh, will, will say and will comment on me and call me being weird. It's like an onion. Uh huh. And you keep peeling back layers of your story and you let us in deeper and deeper and deeper into your story. So the first few poems are this outside version of you. But as the book continues, you allow us deeper and deeper and deeper into your story. So it's like the peel, like the layers of an onion being peeled away. And so by the end of the book, I feel like I know you. Thank you. And I think that obviously is a credit to you and a credit to the editing process, right? Of putting it in the right order. That was hard. Yeah. But I, I really feel like that is the end result of what your book does is not only does it allow us to see you, but it lets us go deeper and deeper and deeper into your story. And I don't like, I would like to hear your version of that, but I feel like that's what it was, what we were trying to do. If that's not, you can tell me I'm wrong. No, I think I did it. I think you're exactly right. In some respects, like I wanted to start out easy so that I wouldn't lose people right away to my, the deepness of it. You know, like I kind of wanted to say, this is who I am. So read these and we'll talk about me you know, the word cute and that kind of stuff. And then toward the end, I'm going to tell you, I probably don't believe in hell anymore. So, but I wanted them to see the, yeah, like this is kind of how the ball went. Yeah. Until the end. But, and then on the very, I had no idea kind of like you, how to end it because I just felt like, you know, I do go back every time I go back and proofread it, which 
uh, Matthew has had me do several times, every time I find, I feel like I've changed my mind on something. I feel like, oh crap, I don't even believe that anymore. Like, and that's why at the very last one, I kind of put that in there and said, you know, there is really no ending to this book and we'll just keep journeying together and just know that I probably don't believe half the stuff I wrote now. So that's okay. Like, we'll just keep going. Um, but the writing style started. So did you, do you guys know passion conferences? Like, have you heard of Louis and Shelley Giglio at all? Do you know them? If I say that name? That doesn't no. mean much to me. It might to Nat, um, but for me, no, because I've been okay. outside of the faith for so long. Yes, yes. Well, somehow I got to be friends through the Francis Chan thing with with Louis Giglio's wife Shelley, and she would write. She's very business. She like um, Chris Tomlin, David Crowder, all those guys were her. Okay. they were under her label, her record label. Got it. Okay. So she was in charge of them. So she's very professional, very business. And when she would write me emails, that's the how she wrote. She would write just little sentences with a period. Just, hey, period, how you doing? Period. We got tickets for you. You know, and just like that. And I thought it right. was so cool. And she used the dot, dot, dot. And I thought that was so cool. Well, was, this was probably in 2006 or so. Right. And so... That's, I don't know. I started writing like that on Facebook. I have no idea. I mean, I know it came from that style with Shelly, but I, I didn't, I didn't know it was poetry. Even my friend who edited it, she, she's a teacher and an English teacher for 25 years. And she, I said, you know, the poems or whatever you want to call them. And she said, I need you to start calling this poetry because this is poetry. And um, it's still hard for me to say that. Especially when I hear Daryl F. Like, I'm like, okay, now that's poetry. So, yeah. And I, I think you and I are both probably very in a very similar place where when we read someone like Daryl F. or December Rose, where she has this spoken word that's just like, it's phenomenal. I, I don't even know how to describe how good what she does is. So then I look at my poetry. And you can maybe relate to this because you actually, you and I have very similar styles in the way we write our poetry. Okay. Um, I use a lot of like free verse. I don't, I, I do write, I do write poetry that is, that does follow a meter sometimes, right? That has that rhyme. But there are times where it's just free verse, my thoughts down on paper, exactly how they flow. And, but my favorite poet, is E.E. E. E. Cummings, who that's exactly the type of poetry he did. He did this free verse, uh, like free thought. Um, my favorite poem, and I'll, if you haven't heard it, I would recommend you read it, is a, a poem called Gee, I Like to Think of Dead. And okay, it's, it's, I'm going to look um, it It's probably the most influential poem in the way I write poetry. Okay. But he also writes very traditional but he, but he also writes these very free verse that flow like yours do, which is basically, um, and don't take this the wrong way because I think this is a, this is a very positive and this is something positive for people who are entering into this world. They are your, your thoughts at the moment and yep. maybe a journal writing. Yep. Maybe not. Yep. And that's okay. 
those are our moments of thought. Those are our moments of breaking down what we believe or don't believe or we're afraid to say or not afraid to say. Uh, and we, we allow them to, to be voiced in this free verse. And I've said this, you know, in other podcasts, the way I write poetry and the way poetry gives me freedom to say some things that I think if I was just to flat out come out and say it, I would get a lot of pushback. But for some reason, if I put it into poetry and put it into this free verse in this, like, this kind of like thought experiment, I don't get as much pushback. And it gives me the chance to say what I want to say and kind of think what I want to put out there into the world before I get a lot of pushback. It allows me to prepare for that. Do you, do you, do you? I completely agree. And, and Matthew, uh, came up with the tagline or whatever, the subtitle for the book. And it's going to be just sacred thoughts said out loud. And because that's what he got when he read it. Like, it's just me. It's just my thoughts. It's just, then just write it down. I love that. I can't wait to read your book. I want to read it. <laughs> well, um, as you can, as the listeners are listening, uh, they notice that there's somebody missing in this conversation. I, I want to acknowledge that, that, that Nat is having some technical problems. Um, he sent me a couple messages and, uh, and I really wish he was here because he's, He's the comedy to my straight man. And so some of the comedy that ends up in our, a lot of our episodes is going to be kind of missing because I'm not the, I'm not the, I'm not the comedic drive that he is. I'm just the version of the straight. I, I'm his, what is, I don't even know. The Abbott is Costello, right? Yes. Yes. Um, Who's on I am the, I'm the, I'm the, I'm the Dean Martin to the, his Jerry Lewis. Uh, Aww, you know, yes. And uh, so for all those who notice that Nat's missing, he's, he's, he's struggling, he's trying to come back in, but it looks like it's not going to happen. So it's just going to be you and me, Karen. Let's go. He's but, 19, class of 1988. Yeah. yeah, class of 1988. That's, that's, so let's talk about that. Let's talk about the class of 1988 and uh, this idea that we were in a weird way, the precursor to the purity culture, right? Absolutely. Um, and I've talked about this with uh, Linda K. Klein. I've talked about this with uh, a few people. Uh, so we didn't have this, this the, 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 the label of purity culture. We didn't get the purity rings. We didn't do the promise. We didn't sign the, the piece of shit paper that said that we would, that we would wait, right? Right, so, right. I have, I have my male perspective of that. And I'm sure you have the female perspective of that. So you and I also share something also very high level of anxiety and a very high level of depression. Okay. 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 I'm, yeah. I, unfortunately, I was 50 years old, 51 years old before I realized I needed to be medicated and I okay. needed therapy. Okay. So I spent yeah. a long time and, you know, my wife, uh, has bear the brunt. My wife and children bear the brunt of of my inability to acknowledge my anxiety and my depression. But now, looking back, right to my early high school years and this level of anxiety, and we've talked about this, like I said, with Linda K. Klein and some other people. So, me being a male within the purity culture, pre-purity culture, my problem was 
that God forbid I ever cause a woman or a girl to be put into a place where she was going to be called out for her inability to not have sex with a man. So that caused me so much trauma when it came to uh, intimacy that, that still to this day is the cause of 90% of my wife and my arguments because I'm not intimate. I don't know how to be intimate. I just don't. Uh, I just, in the last week, finally confessed to my wife, when I hold your hand, I don't know if you know this, but I'm waiting how long till I have to let go and make it be okay. Because I don't know how to hold your hand because I don't know how to be intimate. I just don't. I've never known how. So how did that... So you, also raised in that culture, having a child... We're going to, this is in air quotes, people, because I don't believe this anymore. Uh, having a child out of wedlock. Right. With a man who then was on again, off again, your partner. How did that, how did that, how does that relate to your depression and your anxiety? Because I can't even imagine. I, my, my level of anxiety and depression is just put on my onus of trying to make sure a woman doesn't get put in that position. Right. So. Now you were put into that position. Right. And your parents, and as you said in your book, where your parents were, were, were good, were good to, you know, nice to you. I, I'm, I'm not going to put, put words into your mouth about how, how nice they were. I'm sure there were some words still said. They were great. I can't imagine. They were yeah. great. It was the other people. It was the other adults in right. my life who had their. So as I left the church, it was the church members who always said they had my back. Mm hmm who then did not have my back, right? Right, absolutely. And then they have you standing on the street corner, wave, waving your hand saying, well, what about me? How do I fit in here, right? So how did that affect your anxiety and your depression? Yeah, I think just n never feeling like... <laughs> we Have you seen Game of Thrones? Yeah, well, I've seen a couple episodes. I, again, my... 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 my uh, the way I was raised, I can't watch that stuff because there's way too much sex in it. Oh, for right? sure. For sure. So, but there was one scene, my husband came home, or my husband has been watching it. Our kids had watched it when it was on, but my husband's been watching it. I can't watch it either. Like, I can't watch it because of the, because of my anxiety, like in all the death and the gore and the... But he's like, I need you to see this scene. And it was this a scene where the one of the queens is walking down this like road, like think biblical times, like old dusty road. She's a queen and she has done stuff. And I don't even know what, cause I haven't watched it really, but they make her get completely naked and they're walking her down this road in front of all the common folk and all the peasants and they're throwing stuff on her and they're calling her a whore and they're calling her all the names you could, they can call her because she's been infidelity and, the uh, like a nun is walking behind her and just saying the whole time she's walking shame and then she'll ring the bell and then she'll go shame and then she'll ring the bell shame like and it goes on for 10 minutes 15 minutes probably in the show and my husband was like is that your life and I'm like that is absolutely my life like that is how I've lived like shame shame 
shame, <laughs> you know, loser, shame. So when I was in high school, I was dating a girl. I'm not going to say her name because she's apologized. But she approaches me one day during my senior year. We've been dating for a, a little while and she lets me know that she's pregnant. Well, we haven't been together that way. Oh, okay. So obviously not my child, right? So I tell her, well, I'm, I'm, you do you have a nice life. It's been fun. And she's like, well, what do you, what do you mean? What are you going to do for me and this child? I was like, nothing. I don't owe you anything. You know, this is a, this is a 17 year old child trying to take trying to come to grips with this moment of you and I haven't done anything to make this happen. So this is obviously someone <laughs> right. else's child. Right. But what I didn't know for over almost 30 years was how fast that went through the church. Oh, wow. And everyone in the church thought it was my child till it got to my mom, which my mom also made the choice to not tell me she knew. Okay. For 30 years. That's for 30 crazy. years, my mom doesn't tell me that she heard the story and thought it was my child and that I abandoned this woman. Oh, yeah. And so that's a whole other level of shame, right? right? So now not only is there shame, like what you're talking about, which is bringing a child into this world, which deserves to be in this world if you want it to be, right? Exactly. Yep. And this isn't, this has nothing to do with pro-choice. This has zero to do with pro-choice. You made a decision on your own that you were going to bring this child into the world and you were going to raise it. Yes. There were, there were a whole bunch of options you had in front of you. That was your choice. And the level of shame that comes with that, right? Yeah. From the church that yeah. says, well, why does she give this child to a better home? That has a man, that has a father and a mother. That, uh, well, at her age, how can she ever raise a child and be a respectful mother? Right? Right. All this level. Um, I thought I did the right thing and still found out I did the wrong thing because I didn't acknowledge that this had happened. Right. Outside of, outside of, outside of me. Right. And so there's another level of shame, which happens. Okay. The level of shame happened first, which is that, uh, obviously I wasn't enough of a man for her at 17. Exactly. And then on top of that, 30 years later, that I wasn't enough a man for her to step into the, the father role of a child that wasn't mine. And I didn't know how to respond to that. Right. It's, and I can't it, imagine. At every level, the church is involved in this, right? And every level, the church is complacent in this. And every level, the church has dictated how we respond to all of this. And that's the sad part, yep. is that we have lost the humanity of just being a human being who doesn't understand the world right? and are doing the best we can to the point where it's like, yeah, but you fucked up. Right. And the church now no longer has a place for you. All that to say I can relate to all the stress that you were under at an early age as you became, for 
all intents and purposes, a teen mom. You weren't a teenager. Yes. You were. Yeah. A, you were like twenty, right? I believe. Right, twenty when I had her, yeah. nineteen when I got pregnant. Yep. Okay, so I mean. Yep. But the church has done a, a shitty job, at best, and that is at best yep. on preparing children for the natural course of the way their body works. Absolutely. We're taught, right? We're taught from point one of puberty that everything about us is just dirty and gross and specifically women. And, and any man who wants to fight me on this, uh, let, let me know when. I'll fight you on this. Yeah. Uh, there's never, I have never been put through any kind of class. And I guarantee you, I'll let you speak on this. I was never put through any class that told me how I was to dress. Exactly. How I was to act, how yeah. I was to be around the opposite sex. I guarantee you, without even knowing you, that you were told that. I was told that. And then, John, I taught that. I became a teacher of that. And partly because of what had happened to me and the shame and the that happened to me, I certainly didn't want my children to go through what I went through. And so if the biological hand grenade ladder wasn't going to work for me, <laughs> then right. what would work? Well, let's see. What will work is if you don't date until you're ready to be married. And right. what so will we get work, into the, what was it? I kiss it. I kiss dating goodbye. I kiss dating goodbye. Absolutely. Absolutely. We were all over that. What will work is if you honor God with your body and, and right. We wouldn't let him, our daughter couldn't date until she was 16. And then it was a group, group dating. And then when she was 18, she could actually go out on a single date, you know, like all those kind of rules, all the, and we would teach, like I said, we would have these conferences. We would lead them. My husband and I and, and some of our friends would lead these conferences for these high school kids and had a, um, what do you call it? A fashion show where we uh, had, you know, all these girls come up and show how you could wear and, you know, wear the stuff that would at that, you know, in 2002 would cover your midriff. Like, we're not going to be Britney Spears, you know. And... Um, <laughs> All those kind of things, like we we just pushed it so hard and pushed the fear of, you know, don't don't even look, don't even don't. I remember my son, you know, he was so good at bouncing his little eyes when he was, of course, before he hit puberty, before he was, you know, and I we were so proud of him because he would bounce his eyes off of any kind of girl and. It, it was just a whole thing. We gave the rings out. We had the girls sign the papers. And I realized too now how many high school girls at the, were so hurt by that, that were in that, that were in that high school because we had girls walking around with rings on their fingers talking about how pure they were. And the other girls didn't have a ring. You know, or, and then the poor girls who did have the ring on their finger, knowing maybe what they were, what their thoughts were, or what they had done or what they wanted to do. Um, it's just sad. It's just sad how much emphasis we put on, oh, you're pure because you're not thinking about it or you're not doing it. And these girls, well, now they're not pure. They're dirty. Well, like, what? I, th I, I think we need to like 
talk about the elephant in the room. We're all thinking about it. Exactly. We're all thinking, we're all, we all, specifically at that age, right? Yes. 16, 17. Yes. Your hormones are raging. Yes. And all you want to do is be with a person that you find attractive. Yes. But you're told that at every level, that's dirty, that's not of God, that's right. evil. Yep. And then at some point when you put on the marriage ring, everything becomes okay. Have at and it. Then, and then you're supposed to just automatically know your role in this now sexual life right. between you and your partner, be it a man or a woman. Right. And that's, God forbid, you find out that you're attracted to the same sex. I mean, let's not even talk about that because no church, I'm sorry, up until recently, and uh, the affirming churches that are there now, you know, God bless you. And you're doing a good job. You, 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 you need to, you need to go a long way. You're, you're almost there. But God forbid, specifically back in our time in the eighties, mid eighties, late eighties, God forbid you had a same sex attraction because there was nobody there within the church to help you understand that other than okay. to, uh, hopefully pray the gay away. Right. That's the, that's the best option you had at that point, right? Yeah. Which is just, you know, and that was for me, you know, there's always those, those steps, right? That, that take you away from the church. Um, the inability to find a home for the LGBTQIA plus community, which is not what they were called then, you know, the gay community, the lesbian community, whatever you want to call it back in the late eighties. That was honestly the biggest, the biggest hurdle that they could not jump for me. And when in, in 1989, when I left the church, it was mainly because of my gay and lesbian friends who yeah. had, who I had become very, very good friends with. And the church told me that they were evil incarnate, that there was nothing good about them. But I spent days with these people, hours with these people. And I got to know them and find out that their interests and their, and their concerns and their fears and their loves were all the same as mine. Exactly. And that I was sold a bill of goods that was just not true. That they aren't the evil that we would been, that we, we had been trained for so many years, right? And all that, that's all that's on their mind is sex all the right. time. That's all honestly, here's, here's the news for you, church people. The people who have to suppress and hold back their sexual desires have a way worse problem about how to deal with their sexual identity than the gay and lesbian and the LGBTQIA plus community. They have a way healthier connection to their sexuality than us that were brought up in the church ever did. Ever. Right. We're the ones who are lost. We are the ones who are floundering. We are the ones who don't know how to be intimate. We are the ones who don't understand that to be open and honest with our partner is the best and honest way to be. You know, one of the things that really screwed me up with my, with my upbringing and that kind of thing was just that 
And then learning all this true love weight stuff and purity culture stuff when Kevin and I were married is we would tell our story and, and I would say, you know, well, he clearly didn't love me because he didn't know, you know, he didn't know Jesus. He wasn't walking with Jesus at the time. And everything that we did before we were married sexually was a sin. And everything after is like you said, it's just glory be to God, you know, like, and we really had a good time before we were married. I mean, (laughs) we really had some fun together and had some sweet times. And it wasn't until this, my whole faith started to like, every started to question and deconstruct and learning all of this kind of thing going, wait a minute. Like, and I remember hearing somebody speak on it, Wayne Jacobson, maybe somebody spoke on it and just said, yeah, like it's just as possible to sin in your bedroom as it with your spouse, as it is like, outside like there's good and bad in all of it and I was just like oh I I really really learned and I really taught that anything inside of marriage is all good and anything outside of marriage is all bad and just you know yeah and that and that brings on a whole level of patriarchy right where whatever whatever the man says is is right uh, the woman should be available for the man whenever he feels the need for her to be available. We would learn and, that and in our the, women's Bible studies. We would learn that. We would learn, you know what? If your husband wants it, you need to give it to him. And I, I even had a mentor tell me, and at the time she wasn't even married. It was just funny now that I think about it. I was dripping <laughs> four small children and and she was, you know, saying you need to give it to him. He needs that. And, but you can do it to the glory of God. So she said, like, just when you're in the midst of it in bed, just tell Jesus, this is for you, God. This is for you, Jesus. It's an act of worship. And I effing did that. Like <laughs> I, I would, I did that. And my told my husband years later, like, you know, there were times I didn't want to do it, but I would just give it. And he's like, yuck, yuck. I don't want to know that. Like, I don't want to know that you were doing that just for me. Like, and and you were saying, okay, Jesus, it's all for you because I don't want to be with him. Like, how sad. And, and unfortunately, you know, <laughs> as we live this world of, of our, of our past and we talk about the purity culture. I don't. I don't want people to think that this is all that we got from. The, right there. There were, and this is the hardest part for me. And, and tell me if you, if you, if you even connect with this. Looking back, because I left the church again. I left it in 1989. I tried again about seven years ago. I actually became an associate pastor of a Southern Baptist church. I became Southern a worship. Pa- yeah, I became a. I became a worship pastor. Okay. For two years, right? Okay. And then I gave yeah. it all up again. You can't see it, but right there, that's that's my license to be a Southern Baptist church minister. Wow. Um, but when I look back, yeah, I'm going to say that the majority of my of my looking back is is a lot of trauma. There's a lot of trauma, and my and our listeners have heard most of it. But I don't want people to think that there were never any good times, right? Because 
that's that's the part that everyone thinks it's like well you're just you just want to shit on church every day that's all you do i didn't stay in church as long as i did because i didn't connect with people there was connections with people that i there and there's a very few a small handful of people that i still consider my close friends that can go all the way back to like 1986 1987 uh-huh. yeah right uh, mm-hmm. most of them have also left the church though or at least right. left that version of church. Yeah, for sure. Um, but I don't want people to think that I didn't have those moments where I'm like, oh, damn, I, I, I have definitely connected with God. There was a, this was, there was a God moment in that. Yes. Um, so for anybody who thinks that, you know, people like you or me or my brother, uh, who we just want to shit on church and we don't have anything nice to say about them, that you need to understand that we didn't stay as long as we did out of any kind of compulsion other than there were good moments. There were moments where I connected with the people that were side by side with me and I truly believe that I heard God speak to me. And those are the moments that I treasure and those are the moments I look for now. Absolutely. There are days where I don't think that could ever happen because I there are days... And I'm sure you can relate to this where I don't even understand if God existed ever. Right. For sure. But within this reconnection of faith 70 years ago, I had the most profound moment I've ever had with God. Yeah. That's awesome. And I don't know, you know, to this day, I can't tell you what, what it meant other than I heard God speak to me in the darkness of the early morning as I'm driving to work. And God says to me, because I, I apologize for taking so long to find him or them or they or her. Right. And the response I right. the response I got was, you're right on time. So loudly that I turned around and looked in the back of my car to see if there was someone in the back of my car. I'm not I'm not gonna dismiss that moment. Some people want to dismiss it and say that it's a psychotic break. Fine. Um, but for me, it was the moment where I found out that God truly existed. I just didn't understand them. Exactly. So much bigger. I just believe that now. It's just, that is so much bigger than the boxes that we put him or her in and put ourselves in to try to find God. I I remember in 2006, uh, singing our hearts out, singing our guts out to God, man, and and singing, I see a generation rising up to take their place with selfless faith and we're on our knees. And man, I was on my knees all the time. And I, I honestly think even with Kristen Dumais, even with her book and the, the different people that are coming out and doing podcasts like this and the books that are coming out and... I think people are rising up actually to take their place to say God is not who we've been taught that God is. Right. You know, yeah. this is uh, Christian Domain, yes. Uh Jesus and John Wayne is is uh uh a a book that if you have not read you need to read when we talk about the patriarchal system within the church and her ability to break it down in a way that lets us understand why why it was so important and how it was built. But then on top of that, then you have a book like your book, which then, because I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to compare you to Kristen Domey, but I also want to say that you're in the same, you're in the same field as her 
in that you are someone who's saying, I have a voice and God damn it, listen to me. Yes. <laughs> and that's, that's the, that's the important part. We've, we've heard from people who look like me for years, who look like my brother, who sadly has had to step away from this conversation. But, um, but we've heard from us for not only decades, we've heard from us for centuries because we are, or we feel that we are, or people like me feel that we, that we are the ultimate connection to God. And if you don't go through our conduit, then it's not real. It's not, it's not the real connection. People like you, people like Christian Dumay, people like, um, December Rose, people like, you know, uh, Diana Butler Bass, people who are, who are standing up and saying, there is a whole version of God that you have ignored. The feminine of God has been ignored. Christina Cleveland, who we, who we had on the podcast, who wrote a book called God is a Black Woman. Ooh, um, I don't know that one. Yeah, yeah, read it. Okay. Uh, in the in, in, in prior to us recording, I told her this was the, the one of the most profound moments of of my career as a podcaster. Prior to us recording, I told her that I you know how much I enjoyed her book. It was amazing. I said I was it was a little difficult to read, and she said, "Good, it wasn't written for you." And I'm like. The me of five years ago would have been offended, upset. Yeah. And the me yeah. of now is like, you're right. I need to step aside because women and women of color have been so marginalized for so long that I need to shut the fuck up. God bless you, John. God bless you for saying that. And give you the opportunity not to... I'm not even gonna, I'm not even gonna say that you need a platform because you don't need a platform. You already have the platform. I mean, there has been women throughout biblical history who have shown us that we should, we should be, <laughs> we should listen, right? I mean, Mary is just one, right? Phoebe, uh, there are so many women, Ruth, there are so many women in the Bible who we have put into a second class position because we as the patriarchy decide that we, we allowed them to be part of the story. Yeah. Thank you. That's, that's <laughs> the sad part. We have allowed you to be part of the story. Whereas Mary has been called the disciple of the disciples. She's the first person that Jesus acknowledged his resurrection to. And we pretend like that doesn't mean anything. You're preaching. And that is, You're preaching, John, right now. I know, I know. I, no. I, get, I get into these moments. Nat, Nat would have shut me down by now because I get on my soapbox. No, it's and great. I, and I am so, and I'm so, I get so angry at people who look like me. The white, middle-class, cisgender males who pretend like they have the answer to it all. God damn it, we don't have the answer to anything. If we just shut the F up for just a minute and listen to the women and the marginalized and the BIPOC community and the indigenous cultures. Like we just, we just had an amazing conversation with Terry Wildman, who was the, uh, the, uh, the person who was the main translator for the First Nations version of the New Testament. If we would just step aside 
and realize that we aren't the end all to everything. Yeah. Well, thank you. How much more could we be taught? Yeah, I think if they would stop seeing us as dangerous, you know. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, we like yes. to we like to use words like you're you're just you're just the Jezebel, right? Yeah, you're just Jezebel. Yep. Um, if you just be more like Eve. Oh man, I spent my life trying to just be so quiet, a Jezebel. But that even is it even that problematic? Yeah. Because at the end of the day, you're just you're just going to disappoint the men anyway. Yes. You're going to go against what God said anyway. So you're either the Jezebel, who is the the evil incarnate, right? or you're Eve, who is so stupid, <laughs> you can't figure out how to not eat a freaking apple. Those are your two options within the, within the biblical culture that the Western evangelical fundamentalist Christian church has set up for you. Those are your two options. That's it. Well, there's a Proverbs 31 woman that... Gets up before dawn to serve everyone, and day after day, her hands seldom rest, and she never eats the bread of idleness. Do you know that that song, that's a song that was from the 70s, and it would haunt me. Every time I woke up and the sun had already risen, I'd be like, I'm not a woman of God. I'm not a true woman of God. So well, I'm not a, I'm not a man of God because I sure as hell can't get up early enough to get to church. So. Well, no. Well, it's okay. Easy like Sunday morning. <laughs> <laughs> that's from your book yeah well i i am i am sad that nat had to had to step out of this i really am um but i i am so glad we had this conversation i'm so glad we were able to make it work and um i'm so glad we're friends yes i just want yes. to be you guys as friends i just want to hang out man well as soon as uh soon we'll all be a choir publisher uh, published choir published authors yes. you and nat are much closer than i am but well actually no that's not true let's let me just i wrote a chapter in this book which is already out so did you really Par- yes i wrote a chapter in Par- parenting deconstructed i, don't so think you I am actually I that book. you have the book i just didn't put, put oh. you together i need to go back and look Yes, I wrote the chapter called um, Making Space for Love. It's chapter 11. Uh, I'm going to look at that. Can we do this again? Can we do this again? We have so much more to talk about. We need to talk about like Absolutely. spanking and oh, yeah. Uh, and Yes. We got- Nat, uh, Matthew DeStefano and Nat and I have talked about, uh, I think... Uh, I think Matthew, unfortunately, I should say, is, is was in a better place. I definitely spanked all my kids, and do I feel bad about it? A thousand percent, yes. Uh, because if I could go back and take that away, well, yep. amongst other things, guess, there's many things regrets. I would take away. Absolutely. 100%. But one of my biggest regrets is that I actually put hands on my children. Well, we did the wooden spoon and told them that I. Right, I didn't do I didn't do the wooden spoon because. Uh, and somewhere within, I was told that if I couldn't handle the, 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 the feeling of my hand hitting my child, I shouldn't do it. Whereas hmm. I, there were other teachings that said you should not use your hand. Yes. So it separates you from that, right? That's what we so there was different, right? So I was taught that if I, if I couldn't control how hard I hit them by using my own hand, then I wasn't, it wasn't worthy of doing. Because you can't control an inanimate object 
object, but you can control your pace. I hated all. Right? So, oh, every time I did it, I, I hated myself more, right? And I think all of my kids really, honestly, probably got spanked two or three times each because exactly. I couldn't stomach it. Exactly. And I couldn't, I couldn't understand this. I'm going to hit you as I'm telling you not to hit anybody. Exactly. Does it, nothing, nothing makes sense about it. I did take our wooden spoons out of like just last year, I think I took all of our wooden spoons out of my kitchen and I said, I'm, I'm sorry, I have no more wooden spoons. That's triggering. And they're like, my kids were like, mom, we're okay. We barely remember it. Cause they were young, you know? And I'm like, I don't yeah. care. It triggers me. I know what we did. Yeah. Like I don't yeah. like it. I, I'll tell this um, one story because it's it's comical and true. So when I was when I was young, I was rather outspoken and kind of an asshole. <laughs> and so my mom came at me with a, a smaller wooden spoon. Okay. And hit me with it, and it broke. Ah. I thought that was hilarious, so I laughed. So my mom went got went and got the bigger wooden spoon. <laughs> She hits me with a bigger wooden spoon and it breaks. <laughs> Again, hilarious, right? Yeah. So I laugh. So then my mom comes after me with the ruler, but you know a ruler doesn't break. I don't care how hard you get hit. Rulers don't break. So I recently told my mom that story and, and, and she was rightly so mortified and uh, wished that she could take that back too. But all that to say, that as you look at that, right? And as my mom's punishing me for whatever, which I don't remember, right? I have no memory of what I'm being punished for. Right. So that yeah. obviously didn't even didn't didn't register in my brain enough to hold on to. Right. All I remember is the moment that my mom had to find something strong enough <laughs> that wouldn't break as she's hitting me. Oh my and, goodness. And, you know, and and my mom is an amazing human being. I don't want anyone to think my mom is a horrible human oh. being. My mom is is the one of the most loving people you would ever meet but she was that's how she was raised yes it was how she was taught yep. and she used that against us i used that against my children until i broke the cycle right and i hope my children can learn from that right that's what i'm hoping and that they can break that cycle. yep because as matthew Destefano and i have spoken on the one thing we keep hearing is i got spanked i got hit with a wooden spoon and i'm okay right. you know what no, you're not. Yeah. No, you're not. Seriously, look into your psyche. You're not okay. Because if you think hitting your child is okay, you're not okay. Wow. And that's that's the cycle we need to break. Yep. Right? Yeah. Yes. But yeah, oh I yes, I would I would love to have you back. We will we'll have you back again after the book is released. Uh, we can talk about so much. So much more stuff. And I know Nat has so much he would like to add to this that uh, I know he's like super frustrated that he had to drop out of this uh, for technical reasons. And um, yes, let's, 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 let's do a part two sooner than later. And um, I I, I know Nat will. Yeah, I mean, come on, class of 88. 88 is great. We are eight. We're almost to our 30, 35th anniversary, or 30, 35th reunion. This year, right? right? Yeah. Yes. It's this year. I, I won't go. Like, I've never gone to any of them, but. Well, you need to get your book out there and then go. Oh, okay. Okay. We'll make that happen. 
That actually, I'm on vacation this week. Like, like any of our listeners need to know any of this, but I'm on vacation this week. And one of my goals is to finish my book this week. Okay. So I hope to finish it this week. Okay. I will send you a rough copy. Uh, I'll send you a rough copy now. Yes. Uh, as soon as we're done with this, I'll send you the rough copy. Please. Um, and then you can let me know what you think. I would love to. But back to what we are talking about. Your book comes out. April 18th. What is it? April 18th. So you know that we will hold this interview until uh, usually the Monday after. Okay. Because we want to help We want to help you uh, get some sales on your book. Awesome. Um, I have uh, listeners. I have read her book. It's an amazing book. It's a book of uh, poetry. And I would say it's a book of uh, your inner thoughts, your, your, your life through journals, I would say. Um, so I'm assuming, and again, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but you've probably written some of the stuff in journals. Absolutely. Uh, as your like daily, your daily thoughts, right? Yeah, for sure. And some of the best poetry comes from these moments of just, I'm in the moment now and I'm going to write about it now. Yeah. And so it's the, it's some of the most honest poetry I've read. It's some of the most, um, forward thinking poetry I've read. And that's something I think people need to understand that, like I said, this is like taking layers of an onion and getting deeper and deeper into who you really are and the journey that you've been on. And for anybody who reads this book, understand that as you step chapter by chapter, uh, poem by poem, you're going to become closer and closer connected to the person who wrote this. And so don't give up on poem number one, read the whole thing and you'll understand the the journey that is Karen. And that's what I think I think is the most amazing part about about the verse the, the way the book is written. Again, I'm assuming it was done on purpose. And if it wasn't, it was a it was a happy accident. Um, I would but, say um, it was done on purpose, this- but thank you. Thank you for, for noticing <laughs> it. Thank you. That means a lot. You have no idea means so much. So, and we will link to everything for you on the podcast. And um, we hope to help you sell to the point where you're a New York best, New, York, New York Times bestseller. Let's go. If you can do because it. Because we've done it once. We can do it again, right? That's right. Let's go. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you. Thank you again for coming on. And uh, we really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to This Is Not Church. Be sure to rate and review the podcast on your platform of choice. If you would like to partner with us, visit patreon.com slash thisisnotchurch, where you will receive exclusive content such as early access to episodes, videos of upcoming episodes, and live Q&A sessions. Be sure to check out our Facebook group or follow us on Twitter and Instagram. All the links are in the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode.